Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you enjoy the teachings from Beth Emanuel, share the links with your friends. Like us on Facebook and tell your friends about the things you are learning at Beth Emanuel. Help us grow the message. In the previous lessons, while working through Ephesians 3, we discovered the eternal purpose of God. That seems significant. We learned that Paul brought the world a revelation which for ages past had remained concealed. He called it the mystery of Christ and the mystery of the gospel. He referred to it as the manifold wisdom of God and the eternal purpose of God. He differentiated it from the gospel, proclaimed exclusively to the Jewish people, by referring to it as my gospel because he believed that God had commissioned him to transmit this revelation to the world. What was the revelation? That God is redeeming the nations through Yeshua the Messiah and salvaging the human race in order to reveal his own glory and discredit the false gods of the world. Paul says that this was the plan all along. But only now has the plan been made public. The Gentile disciples from the nations are the first fruits, the forerunners of the redemption of the nations. Overfamiliarity with the New Testament makes it easy to read over a passage like Ephesians 3 and miss the main point about the redemption of the nations. It's also normal to read through a passage like this and take for granted the amount of deep Jewish mysticism at work in apostolic theology. As we conclude our read-through of Ephesians 3, we should slow down enough to appreciate the vastness of thought that Paul marshals to express his ideas. The best way to do that will be to compare his statements with similar concepts in Jewish mysticism. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in the Messiah Yeshua our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. In the previous lessons, we saw how Paul used an analogy from Roman life to illustrate the relationship between Yeshua and his disciples. Roman laws concerning the manumission of slaves, adoption into the family, and the inheritance of citizenship are still in view. He compared the disciples to household slaves in a Roman home. In this analogy, Yeshua is the owner of the slaves. The disciples are compared to household slaves set free by the Son and adopted into the family as children. Under Roman law, a Roman citizen had the legal right to grant his slaves freedom. This was called manumission. But to do so was no great favor because a freed slave had no rights, no status, no money, no place, no standing. Therefore, the Roman householder who wanted to grant his trusted slave his freedom would often adopt that slave into his family, lending him his family name. This is how the prisoner of war, Joseph ben Matthias, for example, became Flavius Josephus. 
the Flavian family of Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian adopted him into their household and gave him their name. When a Roman citizen adopts a child, and that child isn't necessarily a child, but rather an adult, that child is eligible for Roman citizenship. In Paul's analogy, Yeshua is the householder who frees his slave, elevates him to the status of son, and grants him citizenship. You who were previously alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, that is, citizenship, have now been elevated to the level of sons who inherit the citizenship in the kingdom. As it says in the Gospel of John, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Elsewhere, Paul says to his Gentile readers, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Yeshua enjoys a unique and unprecedented relationship with God, intimately knowing the Father as only the Son knows him. For this reason, the disciple of Yeshua enjoys access to God, confidently approaches him as a loving father, and prays with boldness in the manner of a child speaking with his father. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory, Ephesians 3.13. Having heard about Paul's imprisonment, the Gentile disciples in Asia Minor might have felt discouraged and disheartened. Their faith, practice, and self-identity depended upon his gospel message. They might have feared that, without Paul, to reinforce their identity and represent their interests in the apostolic community, they would lose their participation in the community of Yeshua. Paul encourages them to consider his tribulations on their behalf, to be a badge of honor. He did not hesitate to suffer for the sake of his message to the nations. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. He concludes these thoughts about the revelation of the eternal purpose of God with a prayer and doxology addressing God as the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Biblical Hebrew sometimes refers to a family unit as a Beit Av, that is, house of a father. Paul's language implies a vast universalism in which God is presented as the first cause, the father of everything. We might paraphrase, the father who is the origin of every category of things in the universe. God seeks to redeem not just Israel, but every family. Everything has its source in God, and all things belong to God. So there should be no objection to the redemption of the Gentiles who are called by God's name.
What is the petition that Paul presents in prayer, unbended knee before the Father of all families? Here's his prayer on behalf of the Gentile disciples of Ephesus. Ephesians 3, 16 and 17 says, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays that they will be strengthened in their inner being. That is to say that God's spirit should strengthen their spirits, their neshamot, the neshama, so that the spirit of Messiah may dwell in your hearts. Much as the Shekhinah took up its dwelling in the tabernacle and the logos of Hashem was made flesh and tabernacled in the physical person of Yeshua of Nazareth. Paul wants the Holy Spirit to quicken our transcendent inner being, that is, the neshama, so that we might become a receptacle for the spirit, the neshama, of the Messiah. This is not the only place that the Apostle speaks of this concept of the Messiah taking residence within the consciousness and within the person of his disciples. In Galatians 2.20, he says, It is no longer I who live, but Messiah who lives in me. In Romans 8, The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of the Messiah does not belong to him. But if the Messiah is in you, he who raised the Messiah Yeshua from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 9-11 This is in keeping with our Master's prayer, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. John 17, 23. Let's dwell on this point for a moment because it comes at the conclusion of this entire discussion about the status of the Gentile disciples, the redemption of the nations, and the eternal purpose of God. We should ask ourselves, What's the connection between the redemption of the nations and this mystical and utterly personal experience of Messiah's being, which, in some ineffable spiritual sense, is taking up dwelling within the individual? How does Paul's discussion of the eternal purpose of God connect to Jesus in my heart? When I was a kid growing up under the evangelical hashkafa, we spoke often of having Jesus in your heart. We referred to conversion as accepting Christ and as praying to invite Jesus to come into our hearts. To be born again meant to receive Jesus into your heart. I've told you before about how my Swedish grandmother expressed her dismay over the medical innovation of heart transplant surgery lest she receive a used heart without Jesus in it. In all honesty, I never really understood the concept of having Jesus in my heart until I encountered a similar idea in Jewish mysticism. 
The teaching of the Arizal transmits a similar mystical idea called Ibur, which means impregnation or pregnancy. It's one of the truly spooky ideas in Jewish mysticism that gives Jewish mysticism and Kabbalistic literature a bad name. It can be misconstrued to sound like some creepy occult thing. The idea is that a soul of a deceased person might be sent to assist a living person in the performance of a mitzvah or to complete a task, especially if it is a task that this particular soul has a personal interest in completing. For example, suppose you were an orphan and raised without parents and therefore never had the opportunity to fulfill the mitzvah of honoring your father and mother. It's something you left incomplete. After death, you might receive the opportunity to go as an ibur to assist someone who is having difficulty with that particular mitzvah. By doing so, you participate with the person in the mitzvah and accrue some of the merit for the mitzvah. You would accomplish this in the form of an ibur, that is, a spiritual impregnation of a small and subtle portion of your soul's identity incarnated into the person performing the mitzvah so as to assist in the effort. It's an idea. I'm not vouching for whether or not there is any substance to that concept whatsoever, nor am I endorsing Lurianic mysticism. But something very similar is certainly true when it comes to the living Messiah's relationship with his living disciples. The apostles teach that the spirit of Messiah dwells within his disciples in order to continue his work, the work of the kingdom, and the will of the Father on earth. This happens through the agency of the Holy Spirit, that same anointing Spirit of God which rested upon Yeshua and now rests upon his disciples and impregnates them, so to speak, with a portion of the Spirit of Messiah. As the angel Gabriel said to Miriam, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Luke one thirty five. Ibur means impregnation. Spiritually speaking, the identity of the Messiah is planted within his disciples like a pregnancy, that is, a person within a person, whether they are Jewish or Gentile, in order to carry out his work on earth. This is why Paul can say, It is no longer I who live, but the Messiah who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 The apostles believed that this spiritual ibur of Messiah within us should transform our lives. I'm not saying that this is how it works. I'm saying that this is how it is supposed to work. This is supposed to be the new life in us, the resurrected life in us, so that we are no longer pursuing our own interests, but the interests of the Messiah, and we are no longer relying on our own sense of self, ego, and identity, 
but rather we have died to that identity and instead find our identity in the living, indwelling Messiah. What has all of this got to do with the Jewish-Gentile questions Paul has been addressing? It goes back to the concern he raised at the end of chapter 1, when he prayed that the eyes of hearts might be enlightened to know the hope of our calling and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us with Messiah as the head over the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1.23 Because each disciple of Yeshua is invested with this identity, Ibur of Messiah, the disciples share membership in a larger corporate messianic identity. Corporately, the disciples of Yeshua form a collective entity which the apostles refer to as the body of the Messiah. This is probably Paul's favorite metaphor to describe the relationship of Israel and the Gentile disciples. Earlier in the chapter, Paul alluded to the body of Messiah metaphor when he said, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in the Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. Ephesians 3.6 He will return to the concept in the next chapter, Ephesians 4, when he says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into the Messiah, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. He invokes the body of Messiah in several places in his epistles. Like the concept of Ibor, it also has an analog in Jewish mysticism, specifically the description of the heavenly Adam, Adam Kadmon, who is made in God's image. According to that idea, every human spirit, every neshama, has its origin in a single human being, the original prototype. And together, all human beings comprise that single human being, who is made in the image of God. The Bible tells us that Adam was made in the image of God. But what is the image of the transcendent and unseen God? Before creating Adam, God first created an image of himself, a reflection of himself, so to speak. According to this idea, all humanity comprises a single human being, a divine human being who should be the image of Hashem, the reflection of God. Sin obscures and corrupts that image. But if we knew who we truly are on the level of the soul, we would realize that there is no real separation between us and we are all of the same stuff, only differentiated for the sake of this lifetime, but ultimately to be reunited in perfect love for one another, which is God's love. That's one explanation of the mystical idea of the heavenly Adam. Think of how often the apostles compare Yeshua to Adam, referring to the master as the heavenly Adam and the spiritual Adam. Likewise, Paul's teaching about the body of Messiah is similar. In his metaphor, Yeshua is at the head of the body. 
and all of his disciples comprise various body parts. The parts are different, they have different functions in the body, but all of them are essential components of the body. It would be inappropriate for one body part to be jealous of another. Thus, there can be distinction and differentiation within the body of Messiah. The eye is not jealous of the foot, nor the foot jealous of the ear. We all belong to the same body. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the assembly, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. I would summarize the thrust of the argument like this. The idea of the Messiah within each person and that together we corporately form the body of the Messiah should utterly transcend our simple ideas of who is who, of human labels and egoic identity, of gender, rank, caste, clan, national standing, prestige, and honor in the eyes of men. It should make the question of who is Jewish and who is from the nations seem irrelevant. It is relevant in the flesh and in this current world, but not on the level of true spiritual identity. Our spiritual rebirth as Messiah on earth is so much more significant than those things that they should be as if they were of no account to us. God's Spirit should be quickening our inner person, the Spirit within us, to the end that the Messiah himself dwells in us, in this sacred union and sacred bond that brings us into the fellowship Yeshua shares with his Father, to the end that it ultimately draws us into the union with the one God, where we discover the truth that has eluded us, namely that God is love, love that transcends all boundaries. Thus Paul prayed for the disciples in Ephesus that the eyes of their hearts would be opened to apprehend the immeasurable, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of the Messiah that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3, 17 and 19. The apostle prays that we may be filled with all the fullness of God, echoing his statement at the end of the first chapter, where he said, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We find a similar turn of phrase used to describe Yeshua in Colossians. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 1.19 The term translated fullness is the Greek word pleroma, fullness. We can't be sure what implication Paul intended by referring to the fullness of God that was pleased to dwell in Yeshua and that Paul desires to see fill Yeshua's disciples but I can tell you that it implies the sense of totality, meaning that all the parts are present. The fullness of God has nothing missing. Later, Christian mysticism, that is Gnosticism, used the term pleroma to describe the divine attributes of the eons, the emanations of the transcendent God, through which the utterly unknowable and unrevealed limitlessness of God reveals himself above the lower worlds. 
This concept is more or less the Gnostic version of the spherot described in Kabbalistic literature, and there's every likelihood that the original Gnostic idea has its source in the type of apostolic mysticism we see at work in Ephesians and Colossians. According to Jewish mysticism, the Ein Sof, the infinite transcendent God, reveals himself and continuously creates the worlds below him, including this universe, through ten emanations, spherot. Wisdom, insight, knowledge, loving-kindness, power, splendor, eternality, glory, foundation, and kingdom. Chokma bina da'at, chesed gevura teferet, netzach, hod, yesod, and malchut. Above all of them, sits Keter, crown, the source of all the rest. And the end of the chain is kingdom, Malchut, which manifests in this physical world and receives the fullness of those above it. The entire scheme is a juggling of abstraction and metaphor to try to measure the immeasurable God, to translate the ineffable into human language, and to understand how the infinite God can enter the world of three dimensions and interact with human beings. Likewise, Paul earlier prayed that the eyes of our hearts might be open to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And now he prays that we might measure the immeasurable in the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of the Messiah that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the apostolic scheme of the Pleroma, whatever it might have been, love sits in the place of Keter above Da'at. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.2 So once again, we find Paul to be speaking in the language of Jewish mysticism when he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This same fullness, which in Jewish mysticism finds one expression in the Tree of Life, the Eitz Chaim of Sfirot, is the pleroma, the fullness which Paul speaks of when he prays for us, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in the Messiah, incarnated as if impregnated into Yeshua of Nazareth. The Spirit of Yeshua a portion of his being, is pleased to dwell in his disciples, incarnated as if impregnated into each of his disciples. Together, his disciples comprise one corporate body, the body of the Messiah, which contains the fullness of God. Compared with these thoughts and meditations on the significance of being a disciple of Yeshua, Concerns over flesh-level prestige based upon who is Jewish and who is of the nations should feel petty and irrelevant. And so Paul concludes this discussion on the identity of the Gentile disciple in Yeshua with a brief doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory 
in the assembly and in the Messiah Yeshua throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Is that the end? The Amen at the end of Ephesians 3.21 seems like a perfect place to end the epistle. After a breathtaking and sweeping flight through the mind of the Spirit of God, this is a good place to land. But it's not the end. From this point on, Paul comes down from the spiritual heights to deliver practical halakhic implications of his theological treatise. Ephesians 4 begins a discourse on how Yeshua's disciples should live. That's where we'll pick up the next time we read Ephesians. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul.